From Arab Center, Washington, D.C., this is Five Questions. Welcome to Five Questions, a show where we unpack some of the big issues of the day, brought to you by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. I'm Yusuf Munayer. In this episode, we'll be talking about the process of creeping Israeli annexation. A few years ago, it seemed that the government of Israel might have been on the verge of formally annexing more or all of the occupied Palestinian West Bank. Such an announcement was allegedly shelved as a result of normalization agreements between Israel and Arab states. And yet, even in the few years since then, the Israeli government today is more right-wing, expansionist, and dead set on controlling the West Bank forever than it was then. Is formal annexation likely to happen soon? What if it's already happening? Joining me to discuss this is Dahlia Shendlin. Dr. Dahlia Shendlin is a political analyst and a public opinion expert specializing in liberal and progressive causes. She's advised nine national campaigns in Israel and has worked in 15 other countries with additional regional expertise in the Balkans and Eastern Europe. Daya holds a PhD from Tel Aviv University, and she's a co-founder of 972 Magazine. She's currently a policy fellow at the Century Foundation, a columnist at Haaretz, and a regular foreign affairs analyst on the BBC TV program, Context. Her book, The Crooked Timber of Democracy in Israel, will be published in the fall. Daya, welcome to Five Questions. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So... Let's start with this. You recently wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs with the headline, Israel's annexation of the West Bank has already begun. Can you tell us what the most proximate factors were that led you to write this piece now? Yes, thank you for the question. I just want to also point out that I wrote it together with my colleague, uh, Dr. Yael Berda. And, uh, you know, the truth is every day for 56 years for the last since the occupation began, I can probably think of some proximate factor indicating that Israel intends to permanently control at the very least the West Bank and retain some form of control over Gaza. And of course, East Jerusalem has been annexed from the start. So when you ask what the proximate factors are, I should say these are the most recent proximate factors. The main one that kind of prompted me to say people need to understand this was a critical move by the government to take uh, one of the most important military bodies or a body governed by the military that controls civilian affairs of Palestinians in the West Bank and transfer that body into the hands or most of its authorities into the uh, hands of a civilian minister, a new position created within the defense ministry. This is called an additional minister in the defense ministry or the minister of civilian affairs in the defense ministry. Uh, he also runs what is now called the settlement administration. Um, and that is essentially taking powers of the occupation away from the military, which conveys that it might be a temporary situation. Some people think that's a fiction after 56 years, but nevertheless, into the arms of the Israeli sovereign state. And that is a really critical change that really went under the radar. And so I think those of us who follow this issue closely feel like it was important for everybody to understand how important that change is, what it indicates about Israel's uh, intentions, uh, and not just intentions, but what Israel is actually doing. It went under the radar because it was overwhelmed by the judicial reform and the protests against it. And this is following a pattern that Israel has used 
for decades of making kind of bureaucratic changes that are almost imperceptible. They're under such a thick fog of technocratic and bureaucratic uh, uh, institutional procedures that it's very hard to follow, even if you do observe this stuff up close. And yet, the sum total of all those bureaucratic changes means that the Israeli state, not just a temporary military authority, is controlling the region or the people or the people and the land, you know, the distinction between uh, governing people and land is very, is very important because the Israeli state uh, and its civilian institutions have been governing Israeli settlers there effectively, you know, for, for decades. But this is basically saying, we're whipping the veil off. We are doing this, the Israeli civilian state is now the authority over all civilian affairs, or most of them, uh, although there is a very, very fine division of powers that leaves some authorities in the hands of the army, but that's exactly where it get, all gets kind of buried under the bureaucracy. And I think we have to make order of this and realize that the distinction between Israel declaring de, uh, a de jure annexation versus de facto creeping annexation that we've been talking about for a long time itself is practically no, no longer relevant. Israel simply doing it. Uh, and I have to say that I thought it was... Um, predictable the moment the Abraham Accords came around and that became the reason for Israel to postpone its declaration of annexation. I realized at the time, even in the lead up, that having made the entire international community fear that there would be some open declaration of annexation and then you know, uh, pulling back from that, from that uh, uh, decision allowed the international community to take its eyes off of the reality happening every day on the ground and through Israel's institutions. You know, there's no doubt the the move towards annexation has accelerated uh, under this government. But as you mentioned in the piece, uh, along with Yael, this isn't exactly new either. Uh, and you talked about that a little bit. Can you describe how you see the origins of these key moments and their, their development over time? Yeah, I, I think that that is partly what prompted me to write the piece was the frustration that those few people who were very closely following this issue were trying so hard to get everybody to understand that they were saying, you know, this is a watershed, this is a major change, this is really a declaration of annexation in other by other means. And part of me wanted to correct the impression that this is something totally new because, in fact, if you look at the involvement of the Israeli civilian state, all branches of the Israeli government, the judiciary, the legislature, the executive, of course, have been engaged in the occupation from 1967. It becomes really very hard to conceptually separate some sort of exogenous, external, army-driven, army-led uh, annexation uh, 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 occupation from the state itself. And you know, I can't go through every single landmark, but just to point out from the very, the very earliest times that in July 1967 the Israeli legislature, that is the civilian legislature, the regular Knesset, passed a law that essentially allowed Israel to apply its criminal code, uh, its regular civilian law over Israeli civilians in occupied territory. And that was the beginning. The, the, the extent of the laws that now apply, regular civilian Israeli laws that now apply to Israeli settlers is extensive. And so they live like regular citizens because of the Israeli Knesset. The Israeli Knesset has created that two-tiered system by which Palestinians live under martial law and Israeli citizens are effectively under Israeli civilian law. And that goes back to 1967. From very early on, the Supreme Court was hearing cases related to Palestinian claims against the army or other various claims in the West Bank. So the Israeli judiciary was involved from a very early stage. And that's before we even get to the role of the Israeli Supreme Court in effectively uh, permitting much of the settlement activity. 
And of course, the executive. I mean, the Israeli state controls the army, obviously, but also every nearly all Israeli, you know, key Israeli ministries from the very earliest stages of occupation, including interministerial committees, were involved in setting policy. And we're talking about the earliest years. So in a way, I thought, okay, everybody needs to understand the importance of the recent moves. But I also saw it as an opportunity for people to realize that this isn't like some original gambit, something new that could maybe possibly quickly be reversed. It is built on a very solid foundation that has been evolving over decades of Israel establishing and entrenching its control over the West Bank, and again, for much of that time over Gaza, um, and even now retaining an effective control over the perimeters of Gaza, that all and all of them involve the entire Israeli state. So I, that was part of the drive for why I wanted to write it. Um, I wanted people to realize how far back this goes and that it's quickly becoming, you know, again, not just something, not like a, a revolutionary change, but something that is really a very fortified foundation for the occupation slash annexation. Um, and having said that, of course, the new change did kind of herald a, a, a kind of process on overdrive of, you know, renewed settlement activity almost at a frenzied pace, including changing the 2005 disengagement law or that allowed settlement evacuation in the West Bank, such that settlers have begun to rebuild those settlements that were evacuated in the West Bank. Uh, the cabinet went ahead in June and slashed bureaucratic procedures for the civilian minister in the defense ministry to uh, uh, approve new settlements to make that to facilitate building more settlements. And the government has advanced plans for up to 20,000 new housing units in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, depending exactly on how you count. So these are going into overdrive. And of course, not to mention the spikes in settler violence, of course, Palestinian violence is part of the cycle. All of those have been on overdrive, but they are not emerging because of this one thing that happened with the change in bureaucracy back in February. Uh, they are the culmination of decades of practice. You know, recently, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, had reportedly said that he sought to smash Palestinian ambitions for statehood. I think it might have been uh, at a cabinet uh, meeting. Uh, clearly, he isn't even pretending to be interested in two states anymore. He once found it necessary to to, to do so for whatever reason. But now it seems that all the masks have, have fallen. I do wonder, though, uh, with the United States and the international community largely willing to play along with what Tom Friedman recently uh, dubbed the shared fiction that Israel's occupation would one day end, uh, and this, of course, effectively allows Israel to have its cake and eat it too, why would this Israeli government want to puncture that fiction? That is a very good question that I think is open only to speculation, because when you think about it, the incrementalist approach, this sort of technical and impenetrable bureaucratic approach that is very hard to understand and visualize over time of annexation, of course, the settlements everybody can see. But I think in a way, the, the, the uh, institutional foundations of the occupation really are even a better indicator of the annexationist designs over the years. And they have been so effective you know, because they fall under the radar. Look how far Israel has come in expanding and making it, its control permanent over, over decades through complete violations of international law with hardly any real consequences. So you sort of wonder, okay, if that has worked so well from Israel's perspective, and I should say that has been the perspective and fundamentally the aim of almost all Israeli governments with, you know, some exceptions, but uh, the idea of a Palestinian state is, is um, I would say, very ambiguous in the Israeli political mentality for all, for all governments as well. 
But nevertheless, uh, most Israeli governments have essentially have essentially presided at least, if not openly supported, expanded settlements and expanding Israeli territory. And if that has essentially been so kind of um, seamless over the years, why would they change it? And I can only explain that by this particular configuration of circumstances. I mean, the coalition partners know that they have what might be a fleeting coalition majority. They have 64 seats. It is very clear to them that that was practically a mathematical error. It could easily have gone the other way. Their, uh, their, number, their polling numbers in months of polling, the average of all polls has, has plunged. I mean, they're not getting more than 53 or 54 seats out of 120, so they've lost their majority. Uh, of course, you know, elections are far away, but it doesn't bode well. They know they have to move very fast. And I think that in a way, even more than that, you know, specifically the coalition partners. Now, I don't want to let the Likud off the hook because Netanyahu's party is backing this as much as anybody. His top, you know, Likud figures and have been saying for years that they support annexation. Netanyahu himself has made these statements. But the specifically the, the, the more theocratic religious Zionist party, which is a key coalition partner, is driven by theocratic principles more as much as any political calculation. And you know, the, the theocratic principle is that Israel should hold political sovereignty. Uh, it's a little bit ironic that even though they are answering completely to, you know, the authority of God, the, the manifestation of God's will is political Jewish sovereignty over the entire area. And they just want to do it, and it may be more important to them even than coalition stability. So between the expediencies of the coalition majority, the theocratic imperative for the coalition partners, and I think the opportunity that they see in a world that is deeply distracted and overwhelmed by Russia's catastrophic war in Ukraine, you know, which has profoundly reshaped you know, global politics. And so much is, realignment is happening as we speak, uh, justifiably so. But I think that the world, and the US in particular, have put this much lower on their agenda. Even, you know, uh, even in the Democratic administration in the US, which theoretically had talked of a human rights agenda, and, uh, in, a in its foreign affairs, has, seems to have you know, reached a conclusion in the very early stages that it's fed up with spending political capital on an issue that remains intractable. And I think that they simply have all the pieces in place by which they think we can do this openly enough without actually saying the words annexation. That seems to me the only reasonable explanation, but it is speculation. One thing we have not yet discussed is the Palestinian Authority. Uh, it was supposed to be a vehicle towards statehood, but with annexation looming or happening in, in practice, uh, it's relegated to simply being a security subcontractor for Israel. Israel neither wants the PA to be strong enough to advance Palestinian freedom, nor does it want it so weak that it would entirely collapse. When it comes to Israeli discourse, what sort of relationship with Palestinians do proponents of annexation actually imagine? It's a very important uh, uh, question, and it's important to distinct, distinguish between how the proponents of annexation view relationships with Palestinian authorities or administrations. And I say I say that in the plural because, of course, we have the Palestinian Authority, but we have Hamas in Gaza, and we have, you know, a, a huge competition for succession in the event it, that the uh, president of the Palestinian Authority should somehow no longer be with us. Uh, but there is also the question of the relationship with the Palestinian people. 
And that is an important distinction because, of course, what troubles Israelis, or at least what they say troubles them, is that they should lose the Jewish majority, which essentially, given that Israel is the only state that controls everything from the river to the sea, Israel already has lost its Jewish majority based on demographics from the Central Bureau of Statistics. So what is the relationship? Let me talk about first the relationship with the Palestinian people. There's no one statement of intention on the right wing, probably because they don't feel comfortable addressing what is essentially their aim of controlling Palestinians without anything like equal rights. However, there is one figure who has made his intentions very clear, and that is precisely the new minister within the Ministry of Defense that we talked about earlier. His name is Bitsada Smotrich, if we didn't mention it before. He's also the Minister of Finance. Uh, and he is really uh, an extremist, messianic, theocratic person. He is fanatically anti-Palestinian. His statements over the years are very severe and frankly frightening, but he wrote a, 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 something like a manifesto in 2017 called The Decisive Plan, in which he outlined the options for Palestinians very clearly for the Palestinian people. He said they have to, have to either completely submit to total Israeli control and superiority, or you could call it supremacy. They could leave, or if they stay and fight, they will be killed. And this is kind of the most explicit statement from most of the right-wing political leaders about what he sees for the Palestinian people. I think that broadly uh, in the mainstream right, which by which I include the Likud, again, they support annexation quite openly, uh, including a party resolution in 2017 calling for annexation. So they have to be included in this. They avoid talking about what they actually intend for the Palestinians, but I think that if you look at the policies and you read the impact, what they have been trying to do is make life unlivable for Palestinians in Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank that is under total Israeli civilian and military control, or, or control over military and civilian affairs. And I think that they basically want Palestinians to, to you know, concentrate themselves in, area, in the major urban centers, which are mostly in Area A and somewhat in Area B. These are, Area A is only about 18% of the West Bank, and at that point they can kind of assume that most Palestinians will be there and they can be governed by something like a vassal body uh, called the Palestinian Authority that, you know, is responsible for garbage collection and maybe health services. Um, and I think that um, for those who are willing to get a little bit more into it, I, I have a, a theory, it's kind of a hypothesis, that the right wing that supports annexation has an ace up their sleeves. And that is that if they decide to really go ahead with declarations, they will start with Area C. And you can read this from their statements over the years, basically calling for a struggle for Israeli control over Area C because of what they have accused the Palestinians of doing. They accuse the Palestinians of a takeover of Area C, which is ironic because, of course, the West Bank is where Palestinians are and have been. And of course, never mind the entire history, we can't get into it. But um, I think if they were to, to decide that they really want to openly annex Area C, they have uh, this ace up their sleeve, which is to say, fine, we will offer citizenship to the Palestinians who live there. The range is between 200 and 300,000 Palestinians, although the right wing likes to think it's less. And they know, based on long precedents from East Jerusalem and from even the Druze in, Golan, in the Golan Heights, that by and large, the Palestinians can be expected to completely reject any offer of citizenship or permanent residency, that, uh, or even if they take permanent residency, they would not vote in national elections. Just look at the patterns in East Jerusalem where Palestinians can apply for citizenship, they're often rejected, but they certainly can vote in municipal elections and the vast, vast majority of them do not. Um, and I think that they are counting on that if it should come to that. That certainly seems to be one of the scenarios they could plausibly do if they feel it's so important to openly annex Area C. It seems obvious to everybody that the Palestinians would not take citizenship and then they can say, well, look, we are the good guys. We tried to offer them equality and they didn't want it. Um, but 
again, I think even that scenario is less likely now that Israel is simply racing ahead with these forms of annexation that are somewhere in between de facto and de jure, and that seems pretty successful so far on the ground as well. Yeah, and you know, then uh, if they annex Area C, they could spend the next 30 years after that uh, negotiating land swaps with the next version of the Palestinian Authority over areas A and B, and round and round we go. Maybe, although there is, one could also make the case that there is an intention eventually to just continue the spreading annexation process, including over areas A and B. Obviously, an Israeli annexation of further occupied Palestinian territory would be against international law, uh, and it would surely draw condemnation from around the world, uh, or so we'd think. Uh, And yet, at the same time, international law hasn't done a whole lot for Palestinians. Um, And today there's a growing realization of a one-state reality and the need for new thinking and new paths forward. Accepting that reality, though, requires moving past this um, shared fiction. If annexation helps bring this about, isn't it better that it just officially take place? Well, this is, uh, goes back to what I was trying to argue earlier. It is already taking place. I think we have to stop thinking about what, you know, in, in Israel's, it's a bit of a game. Israel wants to dangle things like the threat of declaring annexation at the world and then pull it back and kind of say, oh, the world breathes a sigh of relief and stops paying attention. The, I, the distinction between de facto and de jure annexation, again, I think is, is almost irrelevant at this point. It's blurred. Even the fact that Israel had to change a basic law Okay, it's quasi-constitutional laws. In order to create the new minister who is responsible for civilian affairs in in the West Bank, that is a constitutional change. You could almost say that's de jure annexation. Uh, But it's being implemented in ways that don't openly say it. So it's somewhere in between de jure and de facto. Why should we get stuck on this? I think the average person trying to understand the situation, you know, can see this debate as rather academic, when in fact what we're talking about is what Palestinians need. Now, I'm not going to tell Palestinians what they need, of course, but I do think that what I would want for any people especially Palestinians who have lived under, you know, an authoritarian military regime for decades uh, is, I think they need self-determination. I think they need representative, accountable, responsible, and responsive governance from whoever is in charge. Israel is in charge. So if we accept that reality and we accept the fact that Israel is already doing this stuff, I think we, you know, the Israel has helped us at this point by lifting the curtain. It is basically crying out to the international community, we are annexing in the clearest possible way, I don't think we need to wait. I think we need to think now about how Palestinians can best achieve what Israel already has. And do I have the perfect solution to that? No. Uh, If you want to talk about how the Palestinians can achieve that, I think that Israel has to have a huge part in making that happen because Israel is in control. I personally think that the idea of a hard partition and separation into two independent states is no longer relevant, possible, and not something that most Palestinians want at this point, never mind the fact that most Israelis don't want it either. So I don't know if you want to get into solutions. I personally support, you know, two states in a confederated relationship with an open border and cooperative, uh, you know, limited set of institutions for cooperative practice on things like economy and security, uh, natural resources, etc., and the ability for people to have freedom of movement and reside on the other side if they are law-abiding citizens who who respect the authority, uh, sovereignty of the other side. That is uh, my approach, but I wouldn't impose it on anybody. I think we need to start from the premise that there's, the, you know, the, the ideas about annexation have turned into a matter of language and semantics. We know what is happening on the ground. 
we know what we need to do, or well, we know what Palestinians need in order to have, you know, self-determination. And the only question is how to get there and what we can do right now to put that process, to at least set the process on a course that will lead to Palestinian self-determination one day. Hopefully soon, in my, from my perspective. Amen to that. And with that, uh, that brings us to the end of our conversation for today. Uh, we'll be sure to revisit this topic down the line. Daya, thank you so much for taking on five questions today. Thank you so much for having me and for asking such uh, thoughtful questions. Remember, if you learned from our conversation today, you can find more episodes on our website and you could subscribe to our podcast through all the major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. We'll leave more questions for another day. Until then, be well. Thank you for listening to Five Questions, a podcast by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast so you can receive announcements about upcoming episodes. Please visit our website, ArabCenterDC.org, to learn more about our work and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.